Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Welcome to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee, and today my guest is T. Kira Madden. She's the author of the memoir, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, and also the founding editor of No Tokens Literary and Art Magazine. T. Kira holds an MFA in creative writing from Sarah Lawrence College and a BA in design and literature and art. She also facilitates writing workshops for the homeless and formerly incarcerated individuals while teaching at Sarah Lawrence College. I had the privilege of getting to meet her shortly after this interview, and I can tell you she's just as genuine and kind in person and so supportive of other writers. So I think you're really going to enjoy the show today. And thanks for listening. T. Kira, welcome to the show. So one of the ways this book has such a grip on the reader is the format. I really like the way that you had it laid out. And it's sort of like a collection of essays, but it also they all sort of thread together and braid to tell this really great story. How did you decide on choosing that type of structure for the book? I, my first love in writing for reading and writing is the, the short form is short fiction or what some might call flash fiction. Um, I just like to call it fiction to avoid those boxes, but I like what kind of micro structures and micro stories appear in very limited space when you don't have room for the traditional plot arc. So when I moved to nonfiction, it seemed it just made sense for me to try working in those fragments in those short forms. And it wasn't until afterwards looking at all those fragments side by side that I realized it was really kind of mimicking the experience of grief and memory in a way that through Lydia Yuknovich's chronology of water, I learned can be an intentional choice, can be allowed. I felt that book gave me permission to actually break what I thought of as traditional memoir form of linear, traditional evenness, beginning, middle, end, and instead just completely explode that idea into something that felt much truer to me. And it definitely worked. Like I, I can't put the book down. I was like turning the pages late into the night, (laughs) trying to like read every single night. And, um, and I think too, like I really, I loved chronology of water and, and Lydia has that way of, of giving people permission to write sort of like this hybrid style of memoir. And I think it's, I think it's, it's awesome because it's needed right now. I think people are more attracted to just any different ways of getting the work out there. And I don't think it needs to be that traditional cookie cutter sort of format that they usually make you follow when you write memoir, right? Absolutely. Yes. And how long, how long did it take for you to write the book? It took three and a half years, almost exactly with no days off. Um, it took me a while to figure out I was writing a book, but as soon as I started that first piece to literally the Friday before the book went to print, I worked on it every day for three and a half years, which is pretty quick for me. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of work. Like there's, you know, because you're piecing together memories and then you're wanting also to 
you know, tell the story in a way that works for you and to also honor the people you're writing about and, and sort of sort through it. So it is, it's a lot of work. I don't think people realize how long it takes sometimes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I worked on my fiction projects for much, much longer than that. I think different projects have different demands of time. Definitely. Cause it, it just depends too. Sometimes if you have, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes when I'm working on something new, that's outside of working on memoir. Cause I feel like I've gotten comfortable there when I'm working on something new. I feel like sometimes certain genres take me longer to get the flow of it. And then I, I feel like I have to read that genre a lot and immerse myself in it. Did you do that while you were writing, just kind of reading tons of memoir to kind of get a feel for the market and, and for the style? I did. I, I really felt like I needed to catch up with memoir. I'm traditionally a fiction writer. I studied fiction and taught fiction and I felt, I feel pretty well versed in, in short story form, everything from you know, Shakespeare to, I studied Russian lit in college. And, um, I just, I felt like I had a breadth of knowledge in the world of fiction of novels and short stories and memoirs. I really didn't know what I was getting into. And in a way, I think that really served me because having read as many memoirs as I've read now, um, I've tried to devour them in the past few years. I think that would have guided the way I wrote my own memoir. Mm. And I think something interesting about it is that I didn't know what I was doing and I wrote the only book I could write. Um, and I think I brought elements of fiction to that book as, as strange as that might sound. I think I built the world and the scenes the way I would build worlds in my fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think if I focus too much on what memoir is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like, it would have kind of hurt me. Um, but I did, I did read memoirs obsessively for the past few years to just kind of catch up on what people have been doing and how my perceptions of memoir really were really incomplete and incorrect that I did think it should follow this traditional form until reading Lydia Yuknovich's piece and Alex Marzano Lesnovich's The Fact of a Body and Melissa Phoebos's Abandoned Me and seeing how those books really defy that and how so many memoirs defy that and my idea of it is just, it's so old school. It's, it's so <laughs> over, <laughs> which isn't to say traditional memoirs can't be beautiful too, but yeah. it's certainly not the only way to do it. Exactly. Exactly. And it's kind of nice too, when you, when you get into writing that you don't have too much influence. Cause I know some people have said, well, I'm, I'm worried about reading stuff while I'm writing because then I worry that I'll pick up on that writer's style and that I'll mimic mm-hmm. it instead of finding my own voice too. Did you, um, did you struggle to find your voice in writing or what was it just natural when you came because of that fiction background? Did it make it easier to sort of get that onto the page? You know, I think, I think I'm ready for writers to be honest about, (laughs) about exactly that. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's really possible to be so immersed in words and reading the way most of us writers are and not be influenced. Um, mm-hmm. I do feel that the imitation in my writing, or I think somebody once, I don't think it was, I can't remember who it was. Someone once called it karaoke writing. Um, the imitation is, is much clearer in my early writing before I was a practiced writer, before 
I had figured out what my voice was. Like I could so easily see what was influencing the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd like to think that doesn't happen anymore because I've been writing for so long and I've, I've written many stories and essays and books. Um, but I, I don't think that's true. I don't think it's possible to completely shut influence out. Um, I think, and I think that's really beautiful in a way. I almost think it's a beautiful thing that every writer is somehow having an echo or as Charles Baxter, Baxter would say, a, a memory stutter of someone else mm-hmm. in there, even if it's simply the way we end a sentence on maybe a one syllable word. That's, that's a pattern choice that you can learn by ear from reading another writer. So I, I don't mm. think it's really possible that we, that yeah. we have blinders on and we can close all of that out. I can still read my work and say, okay, I can see that I just discovered Lydia Yuknovich when I wrote this. I can see that I just discovered this writer when I wrote this. Not that it sounds the same, but you can still mm-hmm. detect it in the ear and also the things noticed or the patterns of speech or even, you know, using dialogue and italics in a new way stylistically. And I think that's the beautiful thing about art. It's just, we have these ripples and echoes through history. And in a way that's how we're keeping past writers alive. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. And I liked it the way that you did the language in your book too, because when somebody was speaking, it was just, it just flowed into what was happening at the time. It was kind of just, it's a little bit italicized in the in the copy that I have. Um, mm-hmm. And I really liked that because it didn't, it didn't feel so distracting. I know that sounds weird, but it, sure. I think that's part of why it just has this really great flow to it. So I thought that was a really unique choice and one that paid off for sure. Thank you. I learned italics from Melanie Ray Tone many, many years ago by reading her nice. books obsessively. I just loved the feeling of that. So I think yeah. if we own our influences, that's that's what's important to, yeah. to then bring them into the conversation and into the room. Yeah, and it gives people the opportunity, you know, like I haven't heard of her. So now I would go and check out her work as well. So I think it, it's She's always amazing. great too. <laughs> yes, I will for sure. and. I think it's awesome to give kudos to other writers and, and talk about who influences us as, us as writers that are also mm-hmm. doing the same thing. And just knowing that everybody's in this process together in this whole journey. And I think that's, that's one of the things I like about the writing community, the people that are giving back and, and helping. And it does feel like there's some great people within the community, like Lydia, like you, you know, a lot of the people I've spoken with recently, they all want to help, you know, new writers to kind of break in because it does sort of feel like this secret society sometimes. Yes. Yes, it does. Unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) And did you have a sort of marketing plan in place when you knew uh, you, the book was ready for publication? Did you have like some pieces that you were going to publish strategically around the time that the book was coming out? I didn't have a marketing plan of my own. Um, my, my publishers and editors, publicist agent were all very helpful with that. I was lucky in that my book is made up of those fragments. So those individual pieces are a little easier to to send out than finding and shaping new excerpts from 
a larger work. I think almost every fragment in my book is completely self-contained and requires no other information. So it was pretty easy in that way. And I did place some pieces in the months surrounding publication. And then, of course, you you can write some new pieces around publication just to get your name out there. If you want to write about the process or write about a topic in your book. And that can also be a little exhausting, to be honest, because I was like, (laughs) well, I wrote a whole book about these topics. Why don't I have to write more essays about the topics? But the more you can get it out there, I think the better if you can do it. And if you can't, I think that's fine too. And you've had several essays come out over the course of a few years, because I know I read one a couple of years ago that's also in the book, included in the book. And did you, when you first started it out doing essays and publishing them with literary magazines, what was the sort of submission process like? Because I know that can be really daunting. I know for me, I always get intimidated and then I don't end up pitching because they think, oh, I don't have any accreditation to my name. And and I think that happens for a lot of people. So how did you, did you just make a list and start submitting essays to like your favorite places to read articles and essays? Mm. Well, because I exclusively wrote fiction before this book, I always went just the submittable route of uh, submitting to magazines I loved. I've never wrote a pitch before. Um, so I would just, the magazines I love to read, the magazines I subscribe to, or magazines with great causes behind them, or like amazing people on their staff, I would submit to those and just stock submittable, <laughs> like most people, <laughs> and wait all those months yeah. to be told no. And with nonfiction, it's a little, it's a little different. I submitted through the slush with Guernica and with the fields of love. And I submitted through the slush until I found an agent who then started submitting work for me. Um, but it wasn't until the book came out with those essays leading up to it that I actually had to come up with pitches for the first time. And to be mm-hmm. honest, I still don't really know what I'm doing with pitches. <laughs> I, I yeah. wish I had more examples. This is another example of something that feels like part of a secret society. Like, why aren't we more forthcoming about what pitches are supposed to entail and what they look like? Because I'd never mm-hmm. written one before as a story writer. Yeah. So I, I did my best writing a few. Uh, most were rejected and a few were taken. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that's my limited experience with pitches. And before that, it's just submitting to the magazines I love and in good faith and hoping that that someone will find it. You know, I work for a literary magazine, so I know how, you know, a reaction to a piece can change on what editor reads that piece and what day it is and what the weather is like. It can be, it's, it's not personal. Um, mm-hmm. even though it can feel that way, it can feel so scary, but, um, and sometimes a piece is amazing and we can't put it in our current issue because we have another piece in that issue that's, you know, hitting the same note in a certain way, or it's about the same topic. And then we have to either push a piece or just invite the person to submit again, but really so often doesn't have to do with the quality of work. Um, so I know how that works. And I think that made it easier for me submitting my own work to understand that it's something personal and I'll just keep submitting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you find, even though you tell people to keep submitting that they, they don't like they, Cause I know I was, I was talking to Rob from Tim House, from Tin House and, um, 
And he said, he was like, you know, I will get this great, you know, this great piece and I can't use it, but I'll say, make sure you like you send something in again. And he said that the women very rarely ever sent something back again. Mm -hmm. And that the men would be like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And they just keep sending until he said yes to something. So do you find that as well? Mm -hmm. I found that. And I think I, I think it was Rob I talked to about this and and heard that as well. And that rings very true to me (laughs) Mm -hmm. for sure. And I think I like how you say like, it's, it's not personal and that, you know, there's so many things that go into choosing something. And like you said, it it depends on the day, the editor, the mood, like, you know, there's so many factors. Yeah. Even the length of the piece, people don't think about that. If a piece is, five pages over, no matter how much we love it, if we've already accepted the rest and we have a limit, like that becomes complicated when you have mm-hmm. art spreads to include as well. And you have the mass head and the bios, you know, everyone's on a budget. It's tough. And, and the length can work against people. Sometimes um, it can be anything or it can be, you know, this piece has to be published in color. Like then that's a consideration. <laughs> you know, There's so mm-hmm. many elements that go into it. Yeah. Definitely. And I think when you're, when you're writing a lot of it solo, but I think too, um, I think writing groups are also really helpful to have feedback. Do you have a group of friends that you can kind of talk to and, and support throughout the process? Yes. I've had a writing group for about five years, two women, um, who went to Sarah Lawrence with me in the MFA program. Uh, all three of us were different years, but we were all friendly and they also started working on no tokens with me right away. So we work on the magazine together and realize that although our writing is very different, we have very similar sensibilities in certain ways. We have a similar sense of humor, a similar, um, we really value language and sentences and they're also just really incredible stand up people, like people I really trust. I really Mm -hmm. deeply respect them and I think they deeply respect me. And I think that foundation is so important when you're going to trust someone with this really raw work, um, to know that their, their critique, their criticisms are coming from a place of respect and not a place of jealousy or tearing you down or condescension. I think Mm -hmm. having that foundation can be very, very helpful. And they're both smarter than me. And I love that about them too. Oh, <laughs> I want to be in a room with people who are smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps to have different perspectives and also people that are willing to give you honest feedback and not just blow smoke up your ass and be like, mm-hmm. you know, it's wonderful when it's not, because what you need is a discerning eye to, to say, you know, I know what you write like, and I know you can do better on this piece or, you know, maybe cut this and try this. And sometimes it's the weirdest little things. I don't know if you find this, but a friend of mine called me over and he was putting together his, his book and working on the edits. And he, it was just like this tiny little, I was like, just print it out. And then you can work on it on the screen and look at the stuff, the notes on the printed version. And he's like, I never even thought of that. And it just, <laughs> he's like, that just saved me so much time. He was like, I was clicking back and forth between screens and, and that kind of thing. So sometimes it helps because you get that you know, you get the great feedback, you have people that are at different levels of writing and can really help guide you too. Absolutely. I think it's so important. 
And, you know, in terms of speaking of community and, and writers, how important do you feel it is to sort of build that community, not just with your writing groups, but also to have a community of people within the literary scene to be friends and support and showing up for them? For me, community is everything. Um, writing is a solitary act for the most part. There are collaborative writers, but for the most part, we do this work alone. And I think in the end, what we really do need are the people to meet us at the page, the people to be on the other side of the page, the people to show up to our readings, the people to share our work. And I think most of us can all say that someone has opened a door for us at some point, whether it be a great teacher or friend or mentor or someone who showed up to your reading, to your weird gig, wherever it was. <laughs> and we have to do that for other people. It's, it's, that's our service as artists is to, is to hold the door open to, to open it as much as we can, as often as we can, unless we have a very specific reason for not doing so. Um, mm -hmm. I think it makes a huge difference. It's a small community. Those generous people, they, they really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it's so nice when someone has a book coming out and you can order a few copies. Like I always like to do, I order a few extras and then I put them in all the little libraries around my neighborhoods. Um, they have like those little free libraries. And then the show, obviously we ask people to make sure they buy the book and leave reviews because that helps a lot as well. Absolutely. That's, that's awesome that you do that. I think that's great. Yeah. Even for people you don't know. I do really believe in that kind of cosmic force that it comes yeah, back and people will show up for you. For sure. You, you kind of, it's like kind of like book karma. <laughs> mm -hmm. You want to help everyone. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I mean, I, when in the early days I was kind of intimidated because all these people were getting book deals and I was like, Oh my gosh, nothing's happening. And then I, I don't know why I just had this sort of shift where I was like, well, if they're getting one, that means I can get one too. And mm -hmm. we can all help each other through that process Completely. kind of thing. So it's definitely, Absolutely. you know, for sure, for sure. It's definitely helpful to be helpful within the community. And, and everybody's so great. Like when I go to readings, when I'm out in Portland, everyone shows up for everybody. And mm -hmm. it's just such a nice feeling to see everybody supporting and and sharing their work with everybody. And it doesn't cost anything to share the posts on social media and share essays. Um, that's another really great way too, also to sort of build that community is like sharing essays from your peers and, and commenting on them to make sure that they get seen by different audiences. Absolutely. It costs nothing. You have nothing to lose. What do you mm -hmm. have to lose by, by sharing inside information? with other writers. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be inside. We don't, we can't all go to programs. We can't all go to school. And even I'm someone who did get an MFA that inside information of publishing was never taught to us in school. And I've never heard of a program that has taught anyone about finding an agent. And I mean, sometimes there are guest lectures, but there aren't classes. The classes are craft based. Mm -hmm. So yeah. by sharing that information with someone like that, there's no competition. You have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Your work is your work. Well, it's not competing with anyone else's work because you're writing the only work you can write and they're writing the only work they can write. Even if you're passing on an editor of a magazine, you're not competing. 
I just, Mm -hmm. it's such a false idea. It is. It's so weird to me when somebody's like, well, they wouldn't give me info and I guess I get it because they're protected. And I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) Like, Share the info. It will help people. And that will help you as well. You know, because people, like you said, people don't forget. So, you know, you want to be kind and giving within the community, you know, with boundaries, obviously there's going to be instances where maybe there's something that's you know, not, but for the most part, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to help people and definitely does a lot of good for everybody involved. We do not forget three and a half, three and a half years ago when my father died, I remember I was working a a literary basketball game and I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a book. I didn't have anything. And I was, I was serving drinks at this basketball game, I was serving drinks and selling t-shirts. And this was all the literary elite and people who had the fancy agents and the fancy books. And a lot of people, because I was just someone pouring drinks and selling t-shirts, they just treated me like, they just treated me really badly. Even if oh, they knew I who I was, that. they treated me really badly. Like I yeah. was just some wannabe at the event, selling them a t-shirt and pouring their drinks and they wouldn't acknowledge me. And Marie Helene Bertino, whom I, I don't think I've ever spoken to since, but I knew of her work. Um, I loved her work and she, she talked to me and she said, you know, I saw on social media, your father died. How are you doing? Do you need a hug? Aww. How's your work? What are you working on? And she was yes. the only person who engaged in a conversation with me. And I will never forget wow. that. I will be a fan yeah. of hers forever. I will buy her books. I love mm-hmm. her forever. <laughs> and you don't forget exactly. moments like that before you're a yeah. big star with a book, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. I know. Cause I've thought of that so many times I've seen people just their demeanor change when, when they see like somebody that's getting published or they're getting a lot of attention and suddenly they're sidling up to them. And I'm like, it's very oh, obvious. Yeah. The eyes, you know, know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as if that person can sell your book for you and do the work. Yeah. 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 Like, no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think a lot of us struggle with imposter syndrome, no matter what stage of the game we're at. Do you ever, do you ever experience that? And how do you handle it? Experience it every day. (laughs) Um, it's, (laughs) It's hard for me to accept good things, even as my blurbs were coming through by, writers and heroes I've admired forever. I would think, did they even read it? Are they doing me a favor mm-hmm. because of some like maybe their taste isn't even that good. <laughs> like I would make up every <laughs> excuse to believe yeah. that I didn't deserve any of the good things that have happened to me in the book. Um but I think I think really leaning into I, I think it's we we really know, we deeply know what our skill sets are and what our abilities are. And where our strengths are. And I think owning those abilities instead of wondering why we're not better at something else is really helpful. And I remember being in school and just post grad school feeling like the person with the the greatest vocabulary and the greatest ideas and the most Mm -hmm. intellect was the best writer. And I would read everything that was ever published in magazines and online. And I remember one night reading this, this piece by a writer I admire and the work was great and it was so smart. And I remember thinking it was this, it was this 
this really coming to light moment where I thought I'm never going to be this intelligent. Like my vocabulary will never look like this. My ideas will never look like this, but you know what? My gift is that I feel things very deeply and sincerely, and I'm in touch with emotional truth and the emotional truths of people. And if I can mm-hmm. lean into that emotion, instead of trying to sharpen my vocabulary in everything I write, which just reads as false, then I will be writing my work and I will be doing my work the best I can do it. And I think my work really opened up after that point. And that helps with the imposter syndrome. Like, okay, I'm, I don't have all the $10 words, but I'm writing yeah. about an experience that people can feel. And that's my ability. And I know where my mm-hmm. limits are. And I think just feeling proud of those abilities can be really helpful. And that's a, that's such a great reminder. And because I think I, you know, I've been through that when I'm going to conferences, I don't have post-secondary education. I've read things where I have to look up all the words that they're using. (laughs) And even still, I'm like, I'm not sure if I understand totally. It sounds really great. And you do like, I had, I definitely had a moment where I burnt out because I was trying to read every essay, every book and, and I was trying to like absorb all of it and figure out how I could become smarter and smarter. Like as I, I read these things and then I was like, you know, I just have to do my own thing and be myself when I show up to these things. And I think that's important for other people that are listening to hear too, because it can be really intimidating going to these events and, you know, you're with all, all of your peers, but there's like those people where you're like, Oh my God, they're so like, <laughs> <laughs> You wrote so honestly and just really beautifully honored every character in your book. And I call them characters just because they are, they, they're larger than life, every single person in the book. And when you're reading, I know a lot of people can feel like they think they know the writer because they've read the book and that can sometimes lead to an invasive line of questioning how do you sort of manage that when the crowd can ask some of those more invasive questions that how do you answer them without giving it all away when you don't want to? Yeah, it's, it's really been a learning experience for me publishing this memoir and having to answer questions like that. I've been working for many years with a therapist on boundaries and I think Mm -hmm. I'm being, I feel as if I'm being put to the test on this tour. (laughs) <laughs> and I think I tr- I've been trying to set the stage immediately in every Q&A with whatever questions are asked of me. I, I somehow fit in in those first few questions like, hey, let's talk about this as a piece of of work. As Let's talk about craft. Let's not talk about the people as if they are the people in my life. Because I firmly believe that fiction, nonfiction, poetry, whatever it is, you're writing into projections, you're writing into your, your best rendering of something, but it's not reality. It's not the actual thing itself. Like that's a romantic mm-hmm. idea, but it's not true. Um, it's a rendering, it's a drawing, <laughs> it's a performance. So the people in my book, it's only certain moments and threads of their characteristics. It's not their whole person in the pages, mm-hmm. but that's confusing for someone and I've been on the other side of that reading books where I feel like I know the author and I feel like I know the people inside of the book, 
even fiction, I feel like I know I can see the author through the story. Like that, yeah. that's what this person observes. So I feel like I know them in some way. So when I'm sharing these really intimate details and then people see me in real life, I think it can be confusing that they feel that they know me and that nothing is off limits because I wanted to share so many intimate details of my life. But the truth is the only fair game I think is what's in the book as far as the people in it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not my place to talk about my mother's sobriety and her journey through addiction outside of what's in the book. And Mm -hmm. so I I just like to remind people that they are characters. This is how I've built the characters. And this is the beginning, middle and end of those characters in the book. And we can talk about that, but not what's happening now because they're their own people and they're not there to defend themselves and speak for themselves. I'm not the person to do that for them. Exactly. And I think too, you know, when you read a memoir, there's also this moment where you, you kind of know that this has happened quite a long time ago. You know, most people don't write a memoir as it's happening. So it's Mm -hmm. been a long time since that and people evolve and change from that point of the book. Right. Like I'm sure a lot of memoir Absolutely. writers get that where people think that they're that same person from 20 years ago and a lot can happen in that time. So, um, definitely good advice. Mm-hmm. And then while you're sorry, go ahead. I mean, I just, I think we're, I think it's even more extreme than that. I think we're turning over our thoughts every moment of our lives. My mm. perception of the world will be different when we finish this conversation than when we begun this conversation just by being in conversation yeah. with you. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, like that impression yeah, on totally. me will then change the way I think about certain things. So this, uh, this ruse, this illusion that we're nailing people down in any finite way is false because we're always in flux. We're changing every moment. And that was mm-hmm. the biggest thing I had to realize writing nonfiction that to, to really nail someone down is it's just never going to happen. It's an impossibility. It's literally impossible and metaphorically Mm -hmm. not even close. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to reviews, are you, do you read them or do you avoid them? I've been reading all of them and I think it's absolutely acceptable and a great idea when people don't do that. I think we're all different, Mm -hmm. but I read something I believe by Justin Taylor once. And he said that he writes for dialogue in the same way that I write for dialogue. And he doesn't feel it's fair to then shut down that dialogue as soon as he's finished speaking. And that really resonated with me that if someone wants to take their time to read my story and my voice, then I, I want to open myself up to hearing what they have to say about it. If they're taking the time to tell me. And of course, in certain cases, that critique feels misplaced that it's coming from the wrong direction or it's attacking me personally or someone attacking my sexuality. And it's really easy to just push those things aside because that's not of value to me. But for the most part, I, I think I learn a lot from what people have to say, whether it's understanding other people's experiences in their life and how it relates to mine, how it's in dialogue or just, you know, basic critique of the writing or the story. And just learning from it. So I, Mm -hmm. nothing has really shaken me yet. (laughs) Knock on wood, (laughs) but I I have been reading them. (laughs) And have you ever gotten a piece of advice from a mentor or, 
you know, a teacher, anyone really that you feel is really, has been really helpful for you specifically with your writing? I've, I've gathered so many valuable pieces of advice in different points in my career. So they all kind of live in different places in my body. In the beginning of writing, a mentor named Suzanne Hoover, a brilliant, brilliant woman and, and writer and critic, she looked at my work. She was my thesis advisor in school. And she said, the difference between a good writer and a great writer is when you stop performing on the page and you allow your characters to start performing on the page. The, mm. That the reader should not be distracted by all the tricks the writer is trying to pull off. They should be living within the page, whether that's the poem or the story or the essay. They shouldn't be able to see everything you're doing, all of your tricks and wires and strings. And I think I love that. That's, that's sometimes uh, easy to see in beginner writers. And I include myself in that. She said this to me because I wanted to, to pull off all the gimmicks and the kind of sparkly tricks. And then it was more about me than the story I was trying to build. And so kind of removing the self was really important for me to remember. And especially important to remember writing nonfiction later. Did you find, you know, in the right, I think you pulled that off beautifully with the book. And, you know, did you find that when you were starting out, it was kind of to like get going to find your style and sort of get past that, trying to do the little tricks and all those kinds of things. How did you catch yourself? Did you read your work aloud or did you just reread over it and, and catch issues with the flow? Yeah, I, I always read my work aloud. I always try to edit on a hard copy as well, instead of a computer, which can feel a little final and kind of shimmering the way it looks really neat and tidy on a computer. And on a page, I feel I can just cross things out or throw the page away or reorganize. Um, that's an important part of my process. But other than that, other than feeling myself on the page or feeling like the page is opaque, I think that's just practice. I think it's just writing mm -hmm. and writing and writing until, until you realize that you need to, to really transform into these characters. It's really kind of a practice of acting. I believe writing is acting and you have to get that accent and that diction and that voice and live within the plane of whatever the piece is instead of you at the desk doing the thing that you think will be most impressive, um, mm. which is tough unless you're working on something yeah. very meta. Of course, that's different, but <laughs> just, just really, I think, dedicating yourself to whatever the project is and living inside of it the best you can. And that's just practice. Mm -hmm. For writers just starting out, if you could go back in time and tell yourself one piece of advice before you began to write this book, what would it be? For this specific book, the best advice I, I wish I knew is what I touched on earlier that to get other people right in your work is not possible. You can only focus on your experience of the world. That's the closest you can get to anything. And your experience of the world changes so rapidly every moment of your life that you can't nail anything down in a static way. 
So to embrace the movement and evolution and the nuances and different colors of, of people and their personalities is the closest you're going to get instead of trying to fit everybody in perfect boxes of this is character X and this is how they act and this is how they move. And I think I, I got them. You're never going to get them and you're never going to get yourself. So to embrace <laughs> that impossibility and just do the best you can. I wish I, I had that freedom when I started writing this book, because in memoir, there's this pressure to get people right and to be accurate. Um, and I think the emotional truths of the moment are more important than that accuracy. That's perfect advice. Oh, especially for nonfiction. (laughs) It is. It really is. Like I was just absorbing it. (laughs) Um, are there any, any people that were influential that you'd kind of like to give a shout out to that were particularly helpful along your writing and publishing journey? Wow. Yes. (laughs) So many people. (laughs) Um, my partner, Hannah Beresford, who's a poet, and she's the person who reads all of my work first draft. We, we need that reader for the first, the really messy draft mm-hmm. sometimes. And just to help you see the work sometimes of like what it wants to be. Sometimes we can't see that ourselves when it's so close to us, especially when you're dealing with really traumatic events and events that might be more recent. Sometimes we need an outside perspective, uh, someone who knows us well, even better say like, actually, I think you were feeling this way. This doesn't feel true to how you were actually feeling. So Hannah Beresford, Suzanne Hoover, the woman I mentioned earlier, who was my mentor in grad school. And to this day still gives me the best advice. Um, Rick Moody is also a longtime mentor of mine who's helped me throughout this process. Lydia Yuknovich, um, the work of Alex Marzano Lesnovich, really important for me through the writing of this book. Um, and gosh, a big, thick list of, of people in my acknowledgements, <laughs> every one of whom have helped me in major ways. I think one of the things I loved uh, watching just on social media was when you took the first copy of your book to show your mom and you surprised yes. her at work with it. That's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one of the best. I just love it because she's so excited and so proud of you and just to see that moment. It's really something when you know, everybody works so hard to get to that moment. So that was, I thought that was really, really special. Thank you. Yeah. Everyone has these kind of unveiling moments when they open their own book. And I think those are really beautiful and so emotionally true. And I always dreamed of that moment, but for me, the truer kind of reveal social media video had to be my mom (laughs) because I wouldn't have a book without my mom. My book is a mm. love letter to my parents and it would have been both my parents had they both been here. But my mom was around and I knew no one would be more proud of that book being finished than her. And it was also important to me because I think people like to think, wow, this person's mom must hate her for being so honest about what's in the book. But my mom has been the greatest support of this book and of our story. And like I say, in the acknowledgments for allowing our story to go on um, mm. and to, to live for our story, to live a new life in the world now with readers, hopefully seeing themselves in what we've been through and what we've 
thrive through. I love that. Are there any books that you're reading or have just recently read that you absolutely love and would like to share with us before we close out the show? (laughs) To be totally honest, I'm on tour right now. I've been really mm-hmm. tired and I've been reading mostly interview questions and emails and takeout. <laughs> and I say that because it's reading. <laughs> it is. And I, I say that because I think there's something shameful we feel when, when we don't have all the book titles to list off as writers yeah. that we should be reading 18 books at a time. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's realistic for most people. No. I think people have children and people have jobs and people have things going on and sometimes they're too tired. And sometimes they just don't want to be reading. And I think that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I just started reading conversations with friends by Sally Rooney on the bus ride here. And it was a really nice kind of moment to like just sit back and, and breathe and read something that I'm not blurbing. It's not a job. Yes. And just, you know, looking out the window, reading a book. And I really enjoyed that. But there are 20 books in my bags I haven't been able to read in the past couple of weeks and to list them all would be untrue. Um, mm-hmm. Many books I'm excited about reading. I just bought uh, The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme mm. Wajun. Um, That's in my when, pile of two reads. Yes, I'm really <laughs> excited to read that. And I'm blurbing um, my dear friend Chelsea Beaker's forthcoming novel Godshot with Catapult. And I love everything she writes. And I've read drafts of this before and I really believe in this book. So I'm thrilled to be, to be reading the first bound draft of it. But other than that, I have not had a lot of time and there's nothing wrong with that. No. And I really appreciate that answer because I think people need the permission that you don't always have to be reading everything that's come out. And it is a lot. It's a lot to juggle. I have kids and I have other jobs that I had two other jobs that I work at and mm-hmm. you know, it is hard. And since I do, when I do the podcast, when I'm booking interviews, sometimes there's three a week and I, I read all of the books before I talk to the authors because I don't ever want to not have read the book. And it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a, a full time job in itself just to read <laughs> the books in time. It's Even if lot. there's only one a week, it is, it, it can be a lot. So. I kind of look forward to those times when I can just pick what I want to read versus, yes, you know, like if I've promised a review or or something like that, right? Or like you said, a blurb, you really want to honor everybody and be able to do it. But sometimes it's just, you're just not able when there's, when you're on the road and you're so busy. Completely. And I also think it's, it's really false that we're, we're in this age where everyone's kind of recording, like I'm reading 200 books this year or some crazy number. And there's mm-hmm. this idea that frequency or number of books makes one a better reader or writer. And I don't think that's true for every, everyone either. Like I think no. I'm, I'm a very slow reader, but that doesn't make me a, a weak reader. I can remember entire passages of books, even if they take me months yes. sometimes to take my time making my way through it. And I think that's, it makes me feel bad sometimes when I see these lists of like, I'm reading, you know, literally 15 books right now. And I don't think that's 
always true. First of all, mm-hmm. <laughs> of all yeah. I don't think that <laughs> makes for a stronger reader necessarily. So I think we no. should just be honest about, you know, sometimes I have time, sometimes I don't. Sometimes a book takes me one sitting and sometimes it's actually a book has never taken me one sitting. It's not possible for me. <laughs> so I'll be honest mm-hmm. about that. Um, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Because I think, you know, especially if you read slower, you tend to retain more because Mm -hmm. a girlfriend and I were talking about, you know, speed reading and like racing to get through something. And she, and another girlfriend was like, Oh, I'm so slow. Like, I wish I could read more. I just don't have the time. And I'm also a slow reader. And my friend Amy said, she's like, yeah, we can read fast, but we're not, we don't remember it in the same way. Like you'll probably, like you said, you can name off whole passages. And I, that's something I can't do when I'm trying to read quickly and, and make sure I just stay in the book, but you're going so quick. You, you can sometimes miss those things, right? Certainly, certainly. And sometimes there's absolute value to wanting to reread a book Mm -hmm. several times Mm -hmm. instead of moving on to the next five. If you just really want to take your time with that book and then start over so you can absorb certain things better. That's great reading. That's gifted reading. Mm -hmm. And I think too, there's something to it when you have those favorite books, right? Because in the book you talk about reading, um, Drew Barrymore's, um, memoir or autobiography. I wasn't sure what to call it exactly, but, um, (laughs) I'm not sure either. (laughs) I know. And, and I remember having books like that when I was, when I was a kid and, and even now I have ones that I've read, but I reread because I saw this study they did on why people like to rewatch shows and rewatch movies they've already seen because it's calming. We know what to expect. We know what's there and we resonate mm-hmm. with those characters in some way. And it kind of gives us that sense of comfort. So I kind mm-hmm. of feel like mm-hmm. that's what all my books are like. <laughs> They're everywhere yes. all over my house, but I like absolutely have comfort books. Mm hmm. Comfort yeah. books, comfort recipes, it's the same thing for me. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm really grateful that you were able to share so much today. and I'm happy to. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions and also everything you're, all the work you're doing and everything you're offering to the literary community is really important and, and very special. Oh, thank you. I just, I have so much fun doing it. I feel like I get to talk to all my literary heroes and <laughs> so it's, it's fun work. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking. T. Kira Madden can be found online at tkiramadden.com. That's T-K-I-R-A-M-A-D-D-E-N.com. Her book, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, is available where all fine books are sold. Please do make sure you pick up a copy and leave a review on Goodreads and Amazon. Until next time, hand to heart, pen to paper, write on. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals.